listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. You can take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53. And last week in 2 Corinthians, we looked at what would be considered probably one of the most powerful and important verses in in, in describing to us the grace of our God and describing the gospel. And and I trust that you took that seriously last week. I trust that, that you looked at it, even perhaps took the suggestion, the encouragement to memorize it. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich. That's a great truth and and we we went through that last week. And just a reminder that all of our, our messages are available online. They are on our website, iTunes, and there's also CDs that are available uh, at the at the information table on your way out. You can always pick those up. They're a week delayed, but they are available for you. Well, today in Isaiah 53, and and the ushers have Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible here today, you forgot it at home, or you just don't have one, please take a Bible and even consider taking it home and and using it. Uh, We believe in God's Word, and we love for you to have a copy of God's Word as we go through it uh, morning after morning, because God has, has written this book, and it is for our not just information, but for our total transformation. Amen? Amen. And, and nothing can transform us in a greater way than, than the Word of God as we build our lives on that. And so today we are going to look at Isaiah 53, actually for the next number of Sundays leading up to Resurrection Sunday, up to Easter, we are going to be looking at Isaiah 53, and as Tony said in the announcement time, be thinking, be praying about who you're going to invite Easter Sunday. Even before, you don't have to wait to invite someone on Easter Sunday, but sometimes Easter Sunday people are kind of thinking, yeah, you know, maybe Christmas, Easter, you know, the kind of, um, you know, the CEO kind of people, Christmas and Easter only. You know what, let's, let's, let's capture in on that and pray that God would do a work in, in the lives of people. We have these excellent invites to the Good Friday service as well as Easter Sunday. Hand these out when you go walking out. Even as you heard, there's these really nice harvest Kelowna orange colored pens. They write fantastically. And so you can take one of these. You can take a pen home, but this pen that's attached to this brochure on the way out, this is for you to invite someone to Easter. Give them a pen, give them an invite. So take 10 of them if you need to, if you have 10 friends. Do you have 10 friends? That's the question. You know, but, but take them, invite family members, neighbors, whoever it is, invite them to come and be a part of our celebration together. And uh, encourage you to be doing that because this is the gospel message and we're going to be building and leading up to that here over the next number of weeks. Isaiah 53 is probably one of the greatest chapters in the Old Testament. If last week's verse was one of the more powerful verses in the New Testament, this is probably one of the most powerful and important verses in the Old Testament. And the amazing thing is, is that it gives us pinpoint accuracy, Isaiah 53 does, to the undeniable proofs of the inspiration of Scripture. 
And I want to explain that to you a little bit so that as you look at the word of God and when you read Isaiah and when we preach on it over the next number of weeks, you know this was God writing to you. He was writing this message for us and it has power and it has impact for our lives. It speaks in, in a way that only God can speak as he, he, he inspired the prophet Isaiah to write this this depiction this this prophecy about Jesus it is detail after detail this chapter is on what happened and how it happened the life or or the the death and burial of Jesus Christ but however a lot of times people get hung up when it comes to God's word and and they start thinking well it's just a bunch of authors who've written stuff there are these old ancient writings you're right they're old they're ancient but it wasn't just human authors that they penned them, but the Holy Spirit, God himself, led them to write down what, what they were to write. And the prophet Isaiah wrote his prophecies here. He wrote the book of Isaiah. He, he wrote Isaiah 53. Now get this, 700 years before it even happened. Our weathermen can't even get the weather right, you know, one or two days. Here Isaiah wrote 700 years with pinpoint accuracy about what would happen to Jesus. And, and what he wrote eventually happened. And it had to, uh, I mean, but, but skeptics today, people who are skeptics, they will say there is no way Isaiah could have written that 700 years before. You see, what really happened is somebody watched the Easter events, you know, maybe it was some of the disciples, maybe it was, you know, Luke, the doctor, or someone, maybe they just wrote it and they wrote it in the pen, kind of in, in, in the, in the, in the, you know, in the way the rest of Isaiah has been written. And, and we're going to plop Isaiah 53 into the book of Isaiah after the events that already happened, but that didn't take place. But skeptics for many years, it was hard to refute their argument, argument on a purely objective basis. It would be very easy to say, yeah, they just inserted it, you know, after the events happened. But up until about 69 years ago, they could carry on this kind of skepticism. And it takes faith to believe God's word. But it's a lot simpler faith than a lot of the other kind of faith that's needed to believe um, a lot of the other opposing arguments when it comes to Christianity and to the word of God. But 69 years ago, the earliest copy of Isaiah uh, were, was, was approximately 1000 AD. Okay, so, so after Jesus' death, 970 years or so after that, so approximately 1000 years ago, uh, or 1,000 years A.D., they had some manuscripts from Isaiah, from the prophet Isaiah, called the Masoretic Text. And those had, uh, that text had Isaiah 53 in there. So we know that, you know, 970 years, we have actual manuscripts that, that, that have this. But again, that really doesn't mean very much because they could have just inserted Isaiah 53, as I've already explained. But in 1947... There were some scrolls that were discovered, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you can go and you can Google this, you can find out about this. Some, some excellent historical events took place. Three shepherds discovered some previously unknown caves just northwest of the Dead Sea. And there they discovered, sealed in, 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 in clay jars, in these containers, they found manuscripts dating back 200 years before Christ. Okay, and so here, I mean, here is even then the picture of, of what they found, the book of Isaiah, and, and you'll see this on the screen. The book of Isaiah is 
is made of a scroll that they found, 24 feet long. It contains 17 sheets of parchment and contains the entire text of Isaiah, including Isaiah 53. Now that is a phenomenal thing, and the only difference when they take and compare the Dead Sea Scrolls with what they found a thousand years after, a thousand AD, they find that in that whole time that there was virtually nothing that changed, only hundreds of years of, of handwriting, copying had taken place, and there were only spelling changes because over time some of the grammar and the way they said certain things changed. But it was with pinpoint accuracy, these Dead Sea Scrolls, to what later on, later on manuscripts had. And again, it just speaks to the clarity of Scripture. Time, time again, it just shows us God's Word is reliable, it is trustworthy, and it is our only rule for faith and practice. That is the importance of God's word. And that is why over the next three weeks leading up to, to Resurrection Sunday, we are getting into Isaiah 53, which is one of the servant song, songs that you will find in the book of Isaiah. It's the, the fourth out of the four that are given. And in these 12 verses, we see the power that there is in the word of God. And we see these words come alive in the gospel. And, and so we, we are taking these verses seriously, and today we are going to look at the first six verses of Isaiah 53, and out of respect and out of just honor of God's word today over this great truth that God has preserved his word through the centuries for us so we can have his word. And because of what you're going to hear today, I'm going to ask you to stand as God's word is read here this morning for uh, this passage. We've already read the entire chapter. We're going to read I, the first six uh, verses here. And so follow along in your Bibles, God's holy word to us. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53, who has believed what he has heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and, and carried our sorrows. Yet we redeemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Amen? Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. Now, the Bible is full of miracles. You read through it, you read amazing miracles, the parting of the Red Sea, creation, Jesus calming the storm, Jesus walking on water. Now some of you may not think, especially if you grew up in Saskatchewan or in the Regina area, you would think walking on water, not that big of a deal because there's Wascana Lake, a man-made lake overlooking the legislative buildings and by midsummer there would be so much LJ in that, that ducks could walk on the water and so you think, well ducks could walk on the water and sometimes I think some humans probably thought they could do the same. But God, we see these miracles in the word of God that, that 
we're at the hand of God and we see God taking and upsetting the whole universe at times for these miracles to take place. How he could feed thousands of people from a few fish and, and, and a few loaves and, and we see these miracles. And yet the greatest miracle of all, greater than any of the miracles that you will read about, all of these stories, all of these depictions of things that took place, the greatest miracle is the gospel. It is what Christ has done. In Romans 4 verse 5, God justifies the ungodly. Now that turns the whole universe, the order of the universe upside down. Because we know from reading God's word that God rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. And we're glad that he does that, right? We're glad that the wicked will one day be punished. And that those who are righteous and those who, who, who serve him will be rewarded. That's good news. But when God declares a guilty person innocent, that is amazing grace. That is miraculous. That is the power of the gospel. When he declares us righteous, that is the gospel. That is amazing. But we know that God, he must judge evil. And he has and he will judge evil. And he's done that ultimately by putting that upon his own son. The judgment and the wrath so deserved went onto Jesus. And this is what Isaiah 53 is all about. Isaiah 53 is a truth that all believers, that if you are a believer here in Christ today, you've had to come to grips with if you are truly saved. And for anyone to be saved, you have to come to grips with these truths that we're going to be talking about. It's just not a head knowledge, it's a heart knowledge. It, it is a response to the gospel. And yes, this was written thousands of years ago, but it was written in, in such a way as you read through this story that it places you and me in this passage. This passage is filled with personal and possessive pronouns. We, us, our. Then we see the word all. We're all in this together. In verse 2 it says, He had no form or majesty that we, that means you and I, would look at him. Verse 3, He was despised and we esteemed him not. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned to our own way. So when you read this text, you must understand, when you read it, when you hear it proclaimed over the next number of weeks, you need to understand, we means me. All right, can you say that? We means me. Say it again. Now turn to the person next to you and say that. Now turn the other way and say it to the other person and if there's no one beside you, your imaginary friend, all right? All right. Now, okay, so to, to further illustrate and understand this, I need some volunteers. I need a few people to help me. And so um, let's see here. Who, do I have three guys? We'll, we'll pick on guys here. You, nothing embarrassing. I just need you to stand in and help out. Who, who, Dwayne, get on up here. Nathan, get on up here. And David, come on up here, all right? So we're going to, um, first of all, um, do it like the price is right. Hurry it up. Come on. You know, this is exciting. This, this is a great thing. So I need, I need some help here. And um, David, if you could come on over here, please. So, so David over here is going to be your Isaiah, all right? So you take and hold on to these parchments, these manuscripts that, that you were writing on. And I didn't find the feather pen or the ink thing, but you have a Harvest Kelowna pen, okay? So, so you can have this here. 
This is Isaiah, okay? So 700 years before this takes place. Nathan, come on over here. You hold up. Now, now you're not Jesus, um, okay? But, but you're just holding up the cross. So, so here we have Isaiah. Here we have, G, have, have the cross. We have Easter. We have this that, that, that we're celebrating, that we're remembering, that is so crucial. Now, Dwayne, get over there. And this is... I, I, I tried to find a real trumpet. The best I could find was a Rough Rider trumpet. So if you can hold on to this, and this represents the end of time here on this earth. This is where we read about that in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, that the trumpet will sound and Christ will return. Amen? Christ is going to return. And this marks the end of time as we know. It's the way of Isaiah way down over there. And way down around the room there somewhere you have creation, okay? But, but it's down over there. So then we have Isaiah. Here we have the cross. And so here we have Isaiah. Do you, uh, you're, you're pretty good on the trumpet. Can you give that a little blow? Very good. Very good. Okay. Stay, stay on, the, on the stringed instruments, all right? So, okay. So, so here we have this. And the way that this... The way that Isaiah wrote it way down over there was written looking back at all the events towards the cross. So it places, this is why what? Say it again. That's right. And so this is the perspective that we are listening and are reading and interacting with the word of God. This, this accounts, and we don't know when this is going to happen. When is the return of Christ? Maybe we're here right now. And the return of Christ is going to be here. Maybe it's going to be still a little further on. But all we know that everyone is included in this by the language of this text and the way that, that the Holy Spirit led Isaiah to, to, to write this, okay? So here we go. Thank you, guys. You, you did very well just in helping to illustrate. And, and what is the illustration? We means... We means... There we go. Just want to make sure you're keeping it sharp. All right. And, and so, okay, so... Here as we look into this story, as we look into these prophecies, I have to ask you the question, what have you done with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? You see, you can't go to him, you can't have him in your life, you can't go to heaven, you can't have his righteousness imparted to you without understanding the truth that we're going to be talking about here today. And this is the greatest truth that anyone can hear. This is the message that he has given us to proclaim, not just to keep it for ourselves. Again, that's why we even see John the Baptist. What does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That is the message that we are to share. And, and he didn't even get to see the finished work of Jesus Christ. We are on this side of the cross and we get to see what he's done. And so we are to share this good news. Behold the Lamb of God. Have we beheld him ourselves? And once we have beheld him ourselves and we understand the gospel, we want to share it with others. We want to invite them into a gospel relationship with Jesus Christ. We want to invite them to church. We want to invite them into our lives. Share the message of Jesus Christ. That is the mission. That is the commission. That is why you are still breathing. You're not breathing just to, to, to go and to, to just kind of exist and go through life and live for yourself. We live it in for the gospel. We're living it for Christ. We are living on mission for him. And we need to realize that and understand that and, and, and get on that and start living that. This is the greatest truth. And Easter, as I said before, just is a great season for us to do this. 
And as you invite people, as you share the gospel, I'll just tell you now, be prepared to be rejected, laughed at, no thank you will be the response. Love, pray, and keep going. Isaiah spoke for 60 years the truths of God and was killed at the end. Didn't go so well for him on this earth. But God, has, God rewards faithfulness. So how do we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? How do I have peace with God? How can I be sure of my relationship with Jesus Christ? And once you are saved, how do you continue to keep approaching God? Or are you good? You know, you said the prayer. You kind of, you know, you were baptized and, 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 and that's good. You know, that, that's enough. How do I approach the Lamb of God? How do I have him impart spiritual life to me? Well, this is a step that these three things we're going to talk about today is for everyone in this room. Everyone, it just depends where you're standing currently is the heart of which you will live this out. And I trust that we will live this out today, every one of us. And it begins, first of all, by acknowledging our rebellion. We see in verse 1, it starts out with some really good questions. Two questions. Who has believed what he has heard? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? Who is salvation available to? To everyone. To all, right? Last week, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, for your sake he became poor. And what did I say last week? For your sake, your sake, your sake, your sake, your sake, or all sake. For, for everyone's sake, he became poor. 1 Timothy 1.15 says Jesus came to save sinners. That's you. That's me. Revelation 5, verse 9. The blood of Christ ransomed people, ransoms people from every tribe every tongue, every nation. It is for everyone. Romans 1.16 says the power of the gospel is, or, or the gospel is the power of God for those who believe. It is for everyone. It's available for all. Yet Isaiah asks a question here. Yet who has believed? And you know what the answer is? Not many. Not many. In Isaiah's day, in Jesus' day, and even today, unbelief is more common than belief. Would you agree? This is sad news. This is a stark reality. This is a wake-up call. But you see, we must acknowledge our rebellion. Anyone, to, in order to come to Jesus Christ, we must acknowledge we've rebelled. We've rejected him. You see, so oftentimes we think we've rebelled because we think we know better than God. What was one of the very first words that your child or that you learned as a young child? What was the word maybe after mom and dad? No. That's right. I mean, it's just, I mean, and, and even sometimes, and sorry if you are one of these parents, um, that, you know we're not going to use the word no around our children because that's so negative. You know what? It, your kids are going to learn the word no. They just will. Well, I know because they'll hear it from the grandparents or from those kids at church that they play with. No, it's within them. There's this sense, there is this rebellion in each one of us. We are born 
Psalm 51 reminds us we are born in sin. We have this bent towards sin, towards rebellion. And so we must acknowledge our rebellion. We see this in the book of Genesis. We see it right from the beginning with Adam and Eve, figuring they know better than God. They rebelled. We've all rebelled. We're all guilty. And so what do we do? What do we oftentimes do when, when, we, when we rebel and, 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 and we find ourselves guilty? We blame others. We'll, we'll then blame others for, for what's happened in our lives. And, and you know, I'm this way because of this or this circumstance. And so we justify it in that way. I mean, again, we see this from Adam and Eve. We see that Adam blamed Eve and Eve blamed the serpent. And, well, the serpent had no leg to stand on, right? You know, I mean, think about that, you know. And some of you will catch that later uh, while you're having coffee, you know. And, but it, it's very true. We blame others. And, and, and the truth is, you can be a wonderful Clean living, people loving, generous person, moral person, doing a lot of the right things and the good things, and you're still lost. You're still in rebellion because you've rebelled against God. In the book of Judges, at the end of the period of 300 years, the writer of the, the, the book of Judges says this in, in Judges 21, verse 25. It says, in those days there was no king in in Israel, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Now, it wasn't like everyone was going around and they were becoming murderers and steal and, and, and cheat and, and, and all kinds of perversion. They weren't wreaking havoc. They weren't doing a lot of grotesque, sinful things. They were just simply doing what was right in their own eyes. And yet they were still rebelling against God. And so oftentimes, here in this room, this past week, how many times have you rebelled against God? We know what God's word says in a certain area, but I'm going to do this instead. When it comes to relationships, God's word gives us instructions on, on, on what a godly relationship looks like or a dating relationship or whatever it might be, but, but we figure, I know better, you've just rebelled against God. When it comes to my money, I know what God's word says. We had a sermon last week on generosity, but we've just, just rebelled against God. You just rebelled against his word. I know what God's word says about forgiving others, and I know it's a good idea to forgive others and forgive that person or, or that employer or that situation or whatever. It might be, but I'm just going to hold on. No, you release it. You don't hold on to it. Aren't you glad that Christ didn't hold on to your sin and, 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 and keep bringing it up in, in, in your life? No. You're going to see, he removed it. He forgives. And we are to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. When it comes to gossip or, or the kind of speech or, or the entertainment that, that we're a part of, you know, like, yeah, I know, that's where it kind of has some principles and guidelines there. But, you know, uh, we rebel against the word of God. Verse 6 says, we all like sheep. Again, we means me. We've all wandered away. We've all rebelled. We have this this nature within us of rebellion. And, and so we must acknowledge, yes, we've rebelled. That's why we need Jesus. That is why the Lamb of God, as we were singing about a few moments ago, Jesus became that Lamb of God. He became one of us, that perfect spotless Lamb to show us the way. And so it starts out, first of all, we must acknowledge our rebellion. But secondly, we must admit our rejection. 
verses 2 and 3. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one... And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So we must admit our rejection. You know, modern movies depict Jesus as, you know, a very gorgeous man. They show him as, you know, a guy who, you know, for his day, he looked really good, you know. And, you know, and, and you see him in, you know, when he's performing miracles and, and that he's wearing that white gown that is, you know, his has been bleached so nicely and is spotless and, and you know, he's, and, and he has this long flowing hair that, you know, just must have the right amount of conditioner and product in it. And, and then he had this beard that was just groomed so beautifully, you know, probably had the nice beard oils in it, you know. And, and when he'd walk by, you get that hint, that smell of pine forest, you know, that he had just walked through a pine forest. It was that manly, rugged smell kind of thing, you know. And, and you just kind of, you know, like, oh, there he is. No, he... God's word says there was nothing beautiful about him. People were not attracted to him. People usually oftentimes are attracted to people who are gorgeous. I did hear one time of a preacher, he was truly, and this is documented, that he was so ugly he actually drew a crowd because of his, you know, he used that, right? He was ugly, he drew a crowd. But usually in our society, we are attracted towards gorgeous people or the people who have really quite, you know, I mean, when you see, you know what, someone walking around and you know they've been working out quite a bit, you're like, you know what, you can't help but take notice, you know, and probably right away we start judging, you know, I don't know if you do, but, you know, I've been known to do it a few times in my life, you know, and how do they get like that? You know, and, and you know, I mean, but we're, we look towards these guys, there was nothing attractive about Jesus, and, and it goes on to say, look at this. He wasn't just rejected. He was despised. But, but actually, I, I got a little ahead of myself. It says here that he was like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. How a, a dry, dry root out of the ground. And, and I went into our, our shed, and here is basically, it's, it's a bulb for a flower that there's really nothing much to this. It's... It's pretty crunchy. You can, can squish it. It seems pretty dead. There's nothing very attractive to this. But even starting now, you stick it in the ground. And something beautiful can become of it. But that's the way Jesus, there, there was nothing. It was like a dry root out of the ground. Just like it's dry. It's, it's like there's no beauty in this. There was nothing attractive about him. And so, so he was rejected in this way. He, he, he was rejected, but... But, but the words even get stronger. Is, it says he was despised. Even the miracles he performed didn't have a lasting impact. I mean, they went from praising him on Palm Sunday to yelling at him less than a week later, crucify him, get him out of here. He was rejected and he was despised. Why? Because he didn't give the people what they wanted. He didn't deliver on what they were hoping for. They wanted a king, a ruler, a guy who would... Right away, just like that, you know, just topple Rome and, and, and right all the wrongs. They wanted someone to come along and fix their economic and their social problems. They wanted a king who would take care of them in that way. Doesn't that sound familiar to today? We want a king. We're looking for a leader. And, and our society responds, jumps on different bandwagons. Haven't we seen that lately? 
You know, because we want someone who's going to fix it for the here and now. Who cares for later? Fix it now. And that's what they wanted. Even his own family rejected him. They thought he was crazy. His disciples bailed on him. The crowds despised him. Kill him! Get rid of him! Crucify him! They were angry. They, they despised him. They, they weren't worshiping there when he was dying. And it died soon enough for some of them. How about for us? Have we rejected him? Even this past week, have you rejected Jesus? You say, well, no, I wouldn't do that. Yeah, you know what? All of us, at one time, and even currently, it is very easy for us to reject Jesus. How many times maybe in this past week or in the past month or that you've said, I don't deserve this. This isn't what God promises in his word. I deserve a better life. I deserve a better outcome. And you've become inwardly at least angry and even almost to the point, have you been in that place in your life where you've even despised Christ? Where you've, I've known friends and even at times in my life, I'm like, God, what are you doing? Here I am serving you and this is what I get? Thank you very much. Have you ever been like that? Am I just the only one who struggled in that? Why did this person die? Why did this accident happen? Why did this financial ruin come? All of these different things, when life doesn't go as we, we have thought, you, you're right and we are so wrong when I say we don't get what we deserve. Because truth be known, we don't get what we deserve. You know what we deserve? Hell, judgment, torment for eternity. We deserve death. That's what we deserve. And he gives us freedom, salvation, heaven, reconciliation, his righteousness. And yet so oftentimes we reject him. And we, we reject what's happened and we don't like it. Instead of submitting to it and saying, okay God, what, what do you want to teach me? What, what, what do you have for me, Lord? I need you. I need your power, your strength in my life. There's times we reject his word. And we may be doing that very much today. We reject his plan for our lives. We reject him by not trusting his promises. And the longer we reject Christ, when we live in rejection of, of who he is, the more danger, dangerous it becomes in our lives. Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 3, it reminds us that, that we are not to harden our hearts like Israel did, that when we hear the truth, we respond to it. You see, so oftentimes in our lives we've rejected, I mean, all of us have rejected God initially, but oftentimes even now, even in Christ, we reject God continually. We're prone to wander into our own ways. All we like sheep have gone astray. And there's only one thing that we can do beyond this. First of all, we acknowledge our rebellion. We admit that we've rejected His word. We've rejected His ways in our lives and thirdly, we must embrace our substitute. Here is the answer, and this is beautiful. This is where the hope is. This is where the life is. Even in our rebellion and our rejection, we come to him and we embrace our substitute. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at those words. Wounded. Crushed. Chastised. If you're in Christ here today, the pain and the suffering and the sorrow that you will face here in this life, all of that is all the misery that you will ever know. This life will be all the hell you will ever experience. If you are in Christ, that is a reality for each one of us. Because by his blood we are cleansed. We are reconciled to God. We don't come under the wrath of God. We are forgiven. We are healed. Look at those two words. I encourage you to underline them. Perhaps in your Bibles if you want. In verse 5 it says, We see the word transgressions. We see the word iniquities. And the promise is, is that he forgives our transgressions. Our transgressions are our sins. Those are the things that we have committed. It's our rebellion. It's our rejection of him and his word. But then we have that word iniquities. Which is, if you want to say, another way to explain that is our bent. All right? Psalm 51 says we're all born into iniquity. Psalm 51 tells us that. And, and, and we have all have a certain bent towards certain struggles in our lives. I remember talking to a guy in my college years. He says, you know, I've never been angry. Never been angry ever in my life. And I'm like, Oh, well, aren't you just, you're lying. And he's like, no, seriously, I've never. He doesn't have a bent towards anger, but later on I found out he had a strong bent towards um, the dark side, evil things, and, and was involved in occult games, even though he, he, he was a believer in Christ. And, and so, but he never struggled with anger, but he had a bent towards something else. And each one of us has a certain bent that we are, are even born with. And sometimes, it, you know, sometimes you say, well, my grandfather was angry, my father was angry, so I just got as angry, just, just got the anger from them. And yeah, they're, they're, and, and it's not necessarily, you know, all oh, Irish people have a short you know, fuse, whatever it might be. You know, and, and, and Germans have a short fuse, I'm told, and, and you know, like, it's all across the board. It, it's, not, it's not our nationality, it's our bent. And some of us are, we all stumble and struggle in different ways. It was in my early 30s I found out about a struggle that I experienced, that I walked into personally in my own life. That's something I found out that my grandfather decades before had struggled with in his 30s. Don't quite understand it all. And then I found my dad also had some of those same kind of struggles. And so we can be born with a certain bent towards sin and we all have this, I mean, in varying, various degrees, whether it be lust, laziness, same-sex attraction, working too hard, whatever it might be, our environment and our decisions, our, our rejection and our rebellion, as we take our iniquities in that bent, it's like then we throw the logs onto the fire and that fire of iniquity becomes transgressions. We start to sin. And so we have this bent towards sin and as we foster those and allow them to take root in our lives, they turn into areas of transgressions. And Christ was crushed for our iniquities. It's just not about, you know what, just stumbling and falling and getting back up, repenting and stumbling and falling. He promises healing. 
that we can change, that the struggles we've had all through our lives can be healed, that we can be changed from the inside out. This is the story of the gospel. Verse 6, it says, The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as soon as you hear that word laid, you have to, to understand what he was meaning and, and what he talks about here about the Lord laying on Jesus, the iniquity of us all, takes us to the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement happened once a year in the fall where Israel would gather, the Israelites would gather together in Jerusalem. And once a year as they would gather, the high priest would bring a goat and they would bring it out for all of the people to see. And he would bring this, this innocent goat and he would take and he would put his hand on the head and he would go to prayer. And the people would go to prayer. And there the high priest would take the sins of the people and he would name the sins, sin after sin after sin after sin, and he would load it up on that goat. And he would, he would put all of those sins there on that goat and then someone would take that goat and lead that goat out into the wilderness and to abandon it. Some, some writers say that they would usually probably kick it over the cliff because you didn't want that goat wandering and finding its way home. Because that goat had the sins of all the people and as the people prayed and as the, the sins were loaded on that goat, they would turn and they would watch it leave and they would see how he carried their guilt. He took it away. He removed it. And that is what the gospel does. That is what Christ has done. It's not just about, our simple, about being forgiven. It's about being healed, about being changed, about a transformed heart. It's a new way of thinking. That is, the goat was a picture of the cross. That's where we get the word scapegoat from. Jesus became our scapegoat. He carried away our sins. It's a picture of the cross. And yet on Jesus, it wasn't a human priest that laid all the sins. It was the Lord himself. God the Father laid the sins on his son. He took our guilt, our shame, our regret, our fear. That is the gospel. It's not about what we do for God. It's about what God has done for us. And as we embrace the substitute in our lives, there's freedom. There's life. There's forgiveness. You and I, we can lay all our sins, our iniquities, our transgressions on Christ. Stop bearing the sins. Some of you have been walking around in guilt, in shame, in regret. Put them on Christ. Stop carrying them. You're forgiven in Him. And here's what we do. Three simple statements. It comes this way. This is how we receive His forgiveness. First of all, I believe. Write this down. These are crucial. I believe. I repent. I receive. I believe that Christ is the scapegoat. He is the one that bore my sins and my iniquities. I repent of my own way. I repent. We tell him we are sorry. And, and repentance means to do a 180. That it is our desire to change. And we receive his forgiveness. This is the finished work of Christ. But it's also a current work. Because we need to continue to keep doing this because we fall in areas of rebellion. If 
fall in areas of, of rejection of Christ and his word and his truth and his goodness in our lives. And so we believe, we, we come back and believe what he has done. We believe his word and we repent of the areas where we have fallen short and we receive his goodness and his righteousness. And you know what he's gonna do? He's gonna replace it. He's not just gonna deal with the symptoms, he's gonna cure the disease. And so many believers, the reason why we're struggling with addictions and fears and different things is just because we're treating the symptoms. And we keep asking God to forgive us, but when he is coming, he says, I will deal with the disease. I will, I will deliver you from that. And oftentimes, and so, sometimes the deliverance can happen instantaneously. And if you have a story like that, be, be thankful to the Lord. But for the most part, it's long Sledding, long going in the same direction of obedience, that this heart is replaced. That his righteousness, you see what happens, our unrighteousness is removed and replaced with his righteousness. Righteousness of God. That's thick, that's amazing, that's perfection. But then we'll bring our unrighteousness into that. And we need to repent of it and we, we ask him to forgive us and we repent and we receive his forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Ezekiel prophesied twice that, that the day would come that the heart of stone would be Removed would be replaced with a heart of flesh. And that's what Christ has done. He's given us a, 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 a heart of flesh that, that can change. Hebrews 7.25 reminds us that today Christ lives to intercede for us. He's not just kind of, you know, just, you know, sitting there in heaven, just, you know, okay, when is the trumpet going to go? You know, like sitting on his throne and, and that. He's busy. He's busy not only preparing a place for us, but he's also busy, we see, interceding for us. He's praying for you. He is not just only interceding for us, but he is the one that is working hard on his end to keep us from falling, to keep us from stumbling. Jude 24 reminds us of that, that he is, is able to keep us from stumbling and he wants to present us blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. 1 John 2, 1 reminds us we have an advocate. He's the atoning sacrifice, he reminds us. That he atoned for us. Hebrews 4, we have a high priest who sympathizes. He knows what it's like to struggle, to go through pain. Have you watched someone go through excruciating pain? Jesus sympathizes because he went through excruciating pain. Anyone who's lost a loved one from cancer, from the struggle of, of that and, and when it is a long, drawn-out ordeal. It's hard. It's difficult. And yet Jesus, he sympathizes. You say, well, his struggle went only on for a few hours. No, you know what? He bore the wrath of God, which is something we would, could never know or ever face. He was abandoned he knows, he sympathizes, he's an advocate for us. 
There will be tough days, that's a guarantee. You will, you have faced tough days, you will face tough days. There will be days of wins, there will be days that feel more like losses, but we keep coming back. I believe, I repent, I receive. Christ carried away my unrighteousness, replaced it with his righteousness, and we keep claiming that moment by moment, day by day, laying it all down, counting everything else as rubbish. This is the most important news. This is the most important thing. And the question today is, what have you done with Jesus? Have you accepted him as the Lamb of God?